everyone. It's lovely to see you. Um, my name is Lorraine, and I'm part of the preaching team here at Sutton Vineyard. Um, I've been part of the life of Sutton Vineyard for over 20 years, which is ever so exciting. Um, and I'm really excited to be here today. Um, I haven't preached for a little while, had a little break. I think the last time I preached was in February. So it's really wonderful to be back and see you this morning. And so this morning we are carrying on um, looking at our, our topic of pivot. And I'm talking about somebody who was a Roman centurion. So the Bible passage this morning is Matthew 8, verses 5 to 13. When Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, this one go, and he goes, and that one come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this. And he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. And he said to those following him, Truly I tell you, I have, found, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. Jesus, you are lovely. Jesus, you are love, you are truth, you are righteousness, and Lord, we pray for your presence to fall in this place, that you would open hearts to your incredible love for them, that you pursue them, you chase after us, and may we really realize that this morning, deep down in our hearts, as we talk about this man who was so undeserving, and we come before you this morning, I do, undeserving, and a bit broken. Pray that people would hear your words for them this morning, Jesus, through the power of your Holy Spirit. In your precious name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. I actually don't know if I introduced myself, did I? Oh, yes, do that now. Hi, I'm Lorraine, um, and um, in my day job, I'm a religious studies teacher, uh, which is wonderful. I really enjoy that. Um, I'm married to Dave, and we have three children. These are important pieces of information you might need to know later. Um, but in my other life, before I became a Christian, I watched this lady every week at training. Every week I watched her, and this woman was going to be the key to my success. She was a tiny woman. She was like five foot nothing. She was incredibly fierce, and nobody crossed her. She was respected, and she commanded authority from these six foot six players, and even more, they were giants, and she was tiny. Her yes would propel me into a completely different future, one that I had dreamed about. I pondered my life with her as my coach cheering me on. But she said, no, I wasn't worthy of the team. Power and authority rises and falls, and those with it are to be feared. And this morning, we come across a little fishing village called Capernaum. 
and it was a small agricultural community on the northwestern shores of Lake Galilee. And we see this uh, remarkable conversation between Jesus and a Roman centurion. Now, we remember that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and he grew up in Nazareth. Uh, he was baptized by his cousin, John the Baptist, in the River Jordan, and then he went back to Nazareth, but people rejected him, so he found himself uh, traveling to Capernaum. Jesus has, in the story, just preached the Sermon on the Mount, and he's also healed a leper, someone who had like a skin disease. And so he's in his hometown, and he's approached by this guy, this Roman centurion, who was a man to be feared. He wasn't actually part of the Roman army, um, because there were actually no forces in Galilee at the time, Um, but instead he was part of the royal troops of Herod Antipas, who was in charge. And rulers like Herod had been um, expected to appoint Roman soldiers just in case to kind of protect uh, Rome and to provide military support. So that's what he was doing there. And a centurion, you think, oh yeah, 100 100 people, but actually, um, it was actually 80 soldiers that he was in charge of, and he owed his um, position to military success, so he was good at his job, Um, and he had obviously good status, and he had good pay, and besides his commands on the battlefield, Roman centurions were expected to do some other things too, like um, policing and um, sorting out customs, and also, they were supervising capital punishment. So you can imagine that Roman centurions were quite disliked by ordinary people. They were seen as cruel and selfish and violent. We don't really know what nationality the centurion was, but we know he was not a Jew. Um, This uh, story appears also in the book of Luke, and Luke talks about about the centurion uh, helping to build the synagogue. So there's another little clue there about what he's like. Because we see that the centurion comes to Jesus and tells him that his servant is ill, and his servant is really ill, and he has compassion on his servant. And I understand compassion to mean this idea of loving kindness and kind of like suffering together. And so there's a back and forth between Jesus and the centurion, and then Jesus asks this Gentile soldier if he should heal his servant, which I think is quite incredible. And the centurion's reply amazes Jesus. And that's what drew me to this passage. Nowhere else is Jesus amazed. If you read all the Gospels, nowhere else is Jesus amazed by somebody's faith. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. So this morning, you can expect from me uh, to talk to you about confidence. This guy comes with confidence to Jesus. The centurion believed that Jesus could and he would heal his servant. Before he'd even opened his mouth to speak to Jesus, he believed that Jesus could and would do this. So this morning, I'm going to go through three ideas of what this passage, I think, is telling us. Uh, So we're going to talk about lordship and authority of Jesus. We're going to talk about how everything is under Jesus' authority and how Jesus has authority over everything else in heaven and earth. And then we're going to think, well, so what? How does this apply to my life? And three short ideas about Christ's power, about who is welcome in the kingdom, and then thinking about how we relate to this guy. Because Jesus says he is amazing. What is so amazing about this guy and his faith? And how can we learn from that? 
So as I said to you, uh, a few days a week, I'm in school. Uh, I teach at a local secondary school, a comprehensive, and I've been teaching my year eights about Christianity, and um, they've had some really good ideas about this idea of authority, because we're talking about it in our lesson. I said, so, guys, what does um, authority mean? I said, putting the hand up, miss, miss. I think it means it's talking about boundaries and like um, power and, and guidance. And someone else pipes up and says, oh, I think it's about like providing structure for society. I quite like that one. And then somebody else was saying about how authority um, helps us um, because they are reliable. And so that was year eight. And then the day before, we'd had a fire drill. What fun. And we were standing there for about 20 minutes. I've got a year nine tutor group, and they were thoroughly bored by this point. And one of the girls in my class pipes up and says, Miss, where's the speech? Translated as, when on earth can we go back in? Um, and I was also thinking, well, where's the senior member of staff to, to tell us that you know, everything's fine, everything's safe, we can go back in? Because, of course, I was looking for the authority figure that brings safety and security, and thinking to myself, I'd really like this fire drill to be over too. Um, when we think about authority, it's actually quite hard to obey sometimes, and it takes humility, and you need to actually decide that, that person is, is like worthy of, of your honour and respect, and actually that you should obey them. The centurion says to Jesus, Lord, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. He makes this respectful greeting. He could demand to see Jesus. Hey, you teacher, come here now and heal my servant, and like have any tool in his arsenal to make him do that. But of course, in our story, we see that he doesn't do that. Remember, the Romans were the political masters at the time, and he could have made Jesus do it if he wanted to. But he gave Jesus great dignity, and respect. He actually calls him Lord twice. And the Greek word is the Greek word kurios. And there would have been some eyebrows raised because nobody in his position would have called a Jew Lord. He shows great sensitivity. And there was also this, this for us it's a bit unusual, this, this weird thing of Jews not being able to go into a Gentile's house because like, for us we wouldn't know the difference. That, that would be strange, but at the time, the customs would have been like, you do not enter a Gentile's house because it would be contaminating to you, excuse me, as a Jew. So he shows Jesus incredible sensitivity, basically saying, you don't have to go through the awkward thing of like not having to come to my house because I know that if you just say it, then he will be healed. He then admits his unworthiness. And it's actually quite similar to when John the Baptist talks, if some of you might be familiar with when G John the Baptist and Jesus are talking, and John the Baptist says that he's not worthy to carry Jesus' sandals. And he shows complete humility and, he, I think, belief that Jesus is Lord. He's Lord over all in sickness and life and death. You see, the Romans would have believed in lots of gods. They would have believed in uh, Jupiter and Juno and Minerva, and maybe he thought Jesus was like one of those guys. Maybe he thought, just maybe, actually, possibly, maybe he thought he was the Messiah. Amazingly, this guy believes that Jesus has the ability to save his servant from a distance 
just by word of command. I think that's worth saying again. He was, it is amazing when you read this and you think he believed that Jesus was going to be able to save this guy from, from, from death, from certain death, just by saying so from afar. That this would have been like totally unprecedented in ancient Judaism. Healing like this just didn't happen. We don't know where the centurion learned about Jesus, but he was basically the first Gentile convert, and if you're not sure what the word Gentile means, it's somebody who wasn't a Jew. He was the first Gentile convert, and he knew he was undeserving of Jesus and salvation. And I think that's often down to our pride. Our pride keeps us, as it probably did him until that point, from recognizing our needs to be saved. We often think that we have the power, and... Actually, we don't. And then I was pondering this, and I was thinking, well, how does, how does pride, how do I break my pride? And I think the only thing that can actually break the pride that we have is a full-on encounter with Jesus through his Holy Spirit. I've said this before, and I love it so much, it's really apt today. We need to be broken free, and that sometimes means quite broken in our circumstances and in who we are but broken free to love deeply and compassionately and greatly. So to try and explain this, let me give you a bit of an example. Um, this quote is super helpful here. The Lord is gracious and righteous. Our God is full of compassion. The Lord protects the unwary. When I was brought low, he saved me. Hitting rock bottom really sucks. It really does. But when our undeserving soul hits that bumpy ground, that is the moment when God steps in and he allows the tears to fall. And the tears are tears of healing and love and humility and tears of power. So for me, uh, sermon prep and schoolwork and marking and all that assessment fun that I do as a teacher uh, has to come in times which often feel quite snatched. Um, with three children, um, quite a busy house. And it was just before church a few weeks ago, and I just thought, right, I've got 20 minutes before church. I reckon I could fit in some sermon prep. Let's do this. So I was there typing away, and suddenly this large orange ball hits me in the face. And it hits its mark. It was meant to hit me in the face. And I didn't cry, because I'm not really someone who cries. Dave does that. But he's not here, so I can say that. Um, <laughs> he, so, but I'm not really someone who cries. But at this point, you know, you've had those moments when the floodgates just open and you cannot stop. I was completely overwhelmed by sorrow. And I thought, why did he do this? Why did he do this? Maybe this is how he shows love, I told myself, because I am the only one he would dare do this to, because he knows, he knows that I am going to love him regardless. It's so upside down, so awkward, so back to front. But what did I see as I kind of tried to dig deep and learn something through the tears? Well, I could see a very, very vulnerable, undeserving child with special needs trying to get my attention. I could see myself as an undeserving mother, all of us undeserving, trying to stumble through and, and find our way. And in our story, we see an undeserving soldier who serves Rome, whose life is turned totally upside down by meeting 
the one, the one from whom grace flows unending. Jesus chose to heal his servant because of the centurion's faith. The centurion was confident and he trusted in him. You see, the pain and the sadness and the troubles continue, but we have hope in the one, for none of this is new. He knows and he sees us and he offers us his hand in times of trial. I've had this song in my head, which I don't know if you have this happens to you, but songs kind of pop into my head. Um, uh, and this one, I didn't even know where I learned it actually. I've never sung it here at church. And it's, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Jesus, 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 how I trust him. And it was that word trust that just get me through this time, Lord. So that's the first bit. The next bit is quicker, I promise. So secondly, we are under Jesus' authority. Jesus is in charge, and the centurion recognized that Jesus had the authority. He had incredible faith. He didn't faith. He didn't need anything else to persuade him that Jesus was trustworthy. Jesus has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Kings, leaders, nations, our human bodies, creation itself are all under the authority of Jesus. So let's just think, why did the centurion come? Well, he had compassion, didn't he, on his servant. He was motivated by his responsibilities. The word parakletos in the Greek, um, which is the word used, indicates that there was little hope for this particular servant. Perhaps the paralysis was a symptom of some acute illness or pain. And generally, I'm a very practical uh, kind of girl, and when I come across um, problems, I think, all right, what's the solution? And um, just, just recently, because I'm the sort of person, when I see suffering, I'm motivated to do something. Just recently, my mum, hi mum, and I went to visit some uh, really dear friends of, uh, of Dave and I's, and um, I hadn't quite realised how chronically ill um, our friend had been, um, and actually that it had been going on for the last two years. And I, when this dawned on me, and they told me that the doctors don't know what to do, and they're looking for alternative therapies, I thought, there's always a way with Jesus, now or in the life to come. And I spent some really precious moments praying for him, and he was at rock bottom, I was praying fervently that God would do his good work in him. The tears were streaming down his face. He's not a Christian. Tears were streaming down his face and his skin was burning up, which what I was hoping was the Holy Spirit. Um, and I was just praying, come Lord Jesus. I think a really awesome thing to do for all of us now would just be to pause. And I just invite you, if you want to, to close your eyes and just bring before the Lord someone who you know needs, needs a healing touch. And if it's you, you I welcome you just to say... Come, Lord Jesus. Emotional researchers call compassion the feeling which arises when you are confronted with suffering and you're motivated to relieve that suffering. I think that sounds about right here. The centurion was pretty brave to come to Jesus because he obviously was motivated by his deep care for his servant. And actually, what he did changed the course of his life. 
This is the pivotal moment when Jesus says, go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And I wonder how this centurion, this Roman soldier, and we all know what Roman soldiers would have looked like, I wonder if he like, trotted off home with a little triumphant smile on his face, expectant to see what was happening, or how he received the news. But certainly, I bet he hurried home to see if it was true. In the beginning, back at creation, Adam and Eve, they were under the authority of God. They were happy days. We weren't supposed to suffer and be held captive to sickness and death. But sickness and death began with sin. You must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. The Bible talks about how our bodies are corrupted or corruptible, not corrupted, corruptible, and that we are subject to sickness and death. And Paul talks about uh, how our natural bodies are, are kind of weak and perishable. And scripture talks about both physical and spiritual reasons for sickness. But just say the word and my servant will be healed. Just say the word. Jesus is the word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is the Word of God. Just recently we went to visit our great nanny, and my son did this awesome picture that might pop up on the screen. Here we go. Isn't that nice? And it was her favorite passage, so I thought I'd share it with you this morning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus simply spoke and the sickness obeyed. In his name, every knee will bow. You see, to have his will performed, the centurion doesn't need to do anything, as we learned from the passage. He has many people under his authority. He simply stated to Jesus that his servant was sick, and he didn't actually specifically, I don't think, ask him to heal him. All the other miracles that we see happening in the, in the New Testament, in the Bible, in the Gospels, um, people asked, and then Jesus healed them. But the centurion doesn't make a demand of Jesus. He just kind of expresses his concern. And I think this is how he likens himself to Jesus. He had faith that this man of authority could see his problem. And he was confident that Jesus would make the right choice. And Jesus says, truly I tell you, I've not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. What is great faith? Ooh, okay, so I was thinking, what does great faith look like? Well, I know it's not about quantity. It's about quality. And the quality of faith that Jesus, I think, is talking about here is like a universal, ever-present faith in every circumstance that is rooted in the person and the nature of Jesus. Go. Let it be done as you believed it would. This is the most important point. His servant was healed at that moment. He met his need because Jesus honoured his faith. So where are we? We've had two points. Look, I'm doing amazing for time. This is awesome. So we've seen that Jesus is Lord and we're under his authority. So under, and now we're going over. So Jesus has authority over everything in heaven and on earth, including sickness and death. Jesus' authority is based on his relationship with God the Father. Could do a lovely lesson on the Trinity, but we won't. 
And again, with my year eights, we were talking about the afterlife. I said, so, what's heaven like? So we had a good old chat about what they thought heaven was going to be like and, and what the Bible said and who's going to be there. But actually, we get some nice clues from Jesus in this passage. And it says that um, Jesus indicates it's going to be a place of rest. Many will come from the east and the west and take their places at the feast. Oh, I like food. With Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So we're going to sit in heaven in good company and be friends with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But there's going to be lots of unexpected people there too. So who are these people that Jesus was indicating from the east and the west? Well, to the east, there were the mountains of Moab and Ammon and Syria. Of course, you had um, also, to the east, you had Babylonia, and you had the Assyrians. To the west, you had the Philistines. None of these are, are Jewish. And then you, of course, um, they knew about the Mediterranean Sea and Cyprus and Crete, and of course, the Romans, because they were obviously in charge. And so here we have this cool, really cool thing where Jesus is kind of pointing to the, how heaven is going to be filled with non-Jews, Gentiles, as well as people, basically anyone who believes in Jesus. And he's pointing, I think, to maybe a time like when people like us will flock to Jesus. And Jesus said it's going to happen. And Jesus says things, and that's certain it's going to happen. And this was really radical. Like, there would have been a few gasps, because the Jews would have assumed that the great messianic banquet would have no Gentiles. To the Jewish audience, the Roman centurion wasn't worth the wasted breath. These subjects of the kingdom, which are talked about, that the Jews still believed in the covenant, that they were part of the covenant, but actually this shocking realization that some of them might not actually make it and be part of the kingdom, that they'd be painfully and excludedly excluded from God's eternal presence. Jesus is the foundation of heaven and earth. C.S. Lewis said, we know, when he talked about heaven, great work on heaven if, uh, if you're interested, we know nothing of religion here. When I say religion, you know, in terms of um, being very ordered and, and the idea of religion, we only think of Christ. Jesus was unafraid to speak about heaven and hell. In fact, he does it more than anyone. The subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So where are the lost going? They're going into darkness beyond darkness, the dungeon beyond, beneath the prison. What are they doing? Well, they're crying and they're gnashing their teeth. I was thinking, do I ever gnash my teeth now? No, only if I was in real pain and agony. So a few clues there about heaven and hell. So, to finish off, I've got three little ideas of how we perhaps can apply this to ourselves. First of all, let's just think about the power of Jesus. Jesus is Lord over all, over all Rome, over all authorities, all governments. The orders of somebody who's in, in charge, one in authority, are unquestionably obeyed. The authority of, of Caesar flowed through the centurion. The authority of God flowed through Jesus. And he had authority over sickness and disease and death. When we face these things, can we, will we, do we lean in 
lean on him when we're having to make these tough decisions? Is this our worldview? Interestingly, when I was being prayed for this morning beforehand, um, somebody uh, commented on the song, Be Thou My Vision, because they saw my glasses perched on my head. And they talked about how um, when we put on, it's like when we uh, put on our glasses, we have this God view, like a, a view that God has when he looks out. Is that going to be our view? Maybe I should put my glasses on now. You see, we have authority in Jesus' name. The centurion had great faith that Jesus' word would heal, that he, Jesus could heal his servant, and he would do it as well. He would heal him with a word as easily as a touch. What words do you need God to say to you right now? And then who is welcome in this unexpected kingdom? You see, the Jews considered contact with Gentiles like kind of contaminating. And this centurion was totally despised because he was like a symbol of Roman oppression. But the Gentile race is no barrier to the kingdom. And nor is the Jewish racial identity a guarantee of the kingdom. The Jews believe themselves sons of God, but actually, Jesus is saying they may end up in hell. If we deny people in this world of different races and classes access to Jesus in this life now, maybe we'll find ourselves excluded from him in the next. Are we captive to our views about the world? Our cultural upbringing, perhaps our hidden prejudices, our conception of what it means to be human. Are our arms open in the welcome of Jesus to all those people we meet, the lost and the broken? Well, who are these people? Well, they're going to be there at the feast with Jesus, but how are they going to get there? Well, if we think hard enough, I think if we think really hard enough, we can see them through the mist of our judgment and comfy sofas. And for me, I just come across these students quite a lot, um, pondering the 16-year-old girl who's doing her GCSEs right now, who goes back and forth from mum's house and nan's house and doesn't really know where she belongs. She's angry and she is alone. The stress is too much and the failure is just too obvious. Money is scarce and arguments are not. And she can't stand any teachers or authority figures interfering in her life. She's learnt to build her walls and shut down. And she doesn't let anybody in. How does she get to sit with Jesus at the feast? Instead of being held captive by our fears and sickness or our harsh upbringing or the things that have happened to us in this life, perhaps there is another way. Our God, he is a God of justice and love and righteousness and truth. The rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. You see, I'd like to challenge us this morning, myself included, that we are all quite like her. We've all built our walls to protect ourselves. But Jesus, the one for whom has all authority and power, will break down this power, these walls, 
that we've built around ourselves. Jesus' sacrifice, his death, the act of justice, the love on the cross which breaks the power of sin. He is with us in the prison of our own making. He is on our side. He is fighting for you, for us. And then we come to this, finally, to this incredible statement. This statement, remember, about the contaminated Gentile. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. You see, Jesus had asked him the question, hadn't he? He said, shall I heal him? Which was pretty incredible in itself. And then his response amazes Jesus. The centurion says, just say the word and my servant will be healed. The centurion believed that Jesus could heal him, he would heal him, even before he told him about it. He didn't need Jesus to come over to his house. And Jesus marvels at this. He has this sense of emotional astonishment that this guy has such faith. And Jesus is surprised in this moment. But what about all the other people who followed Jesus? And you think to yourself, well, hang on a minute. This guy had the most faith in all of Israel. What about all the disciples who left their wife, the wife's wife, one of them was married, um, their families, their homes, their jobs, all these people who left everything for Jesus? What about Mary Magdalene? Or about um, John the Baptist? Or all of those people who followed him? Or the woman who was bleeding for 12 years? What about all those people? This guy. What's so amazing about this guy? The centurion was the most unlikely person to amaze Jesus. Um, Can we have the worship team to come back? He was a Gentile. He had a pagan upbringing. He was a Roman in Palestine trying to subject Jews to the rule of the emperor. He was a man of war. He was a man who was very confident in brutal martial arts. And Jesus is surprised. (laughs) And we can learn from Jesus' own surprise that this enemy soldier proved to be the model of faith for people of God. Perhaps we shouldn't be surprised when we see faith pop up in unexpected places, even in people who could be considered to be our enemies. May we have faith like that Roman centurion. So be able to humble ourselves and come before Jesus. And when trouble comes and sickness comes, turn to him. Maybe let's wave goodbye to our pride, pride in our own ability, and be able to deny ourselves and follow Jesus. And turn to him and embrace the one who speaks and the enemy shudders. Let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence, not just here, but in the life to come where we will enjoy his company at the feast, the best, perhaps, dinner party that ever was, is, or will be. Thanks.